They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are... Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling! Power Trip of Wrestling brought to you and powered by Bombas, the mind-blowing athletic leisure sock with a message of helping those in need. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I am joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz. John, how are you? Hey, yo, I'm doing pretty damn good, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing awesome because today we have a jam-packed show. Maybe not as jam-packed as some of uh, our other episodes, but you are going to sit down and you are going to get a ultimate wrestling lesson from the greatest play-by-play announcer in the history of professional wrestling. Good old JR, Jim Ross, is here, and we will get to him very shortly, primetime. Oh, yeah, but first, got a great guest, a guy with over 50 years in the wrestling business, one of the greatest wrestling writers out there, the legendary, dare I say, Mike Mooneyham. Very, very good stuff um, from the man with more experience than uh, most people have, you know, in in their their you know their profession, he's got over fifty years experience uh, writing in the wrestling business, so he knows this stuff. Oh yeah, totally. And of course, the news came out this weekend that Mike will be inducted into the 2015 class of the Mid Atlantic Wrestling Legends Hall of Heroes, July 31st in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you can go to nwalegends.com for more information on that. Mike Mooneyham has been around forever, like you said. He is been through. All the territories, he's been through all the major stuff going on in the Carolinas. But he still keeps it very topical, and he's still a fan of today's professional wrestling, which sometimes I find very hard uh, to, to talk to when you talk to somebody who's been around the business so long. It's kind of tough to watch some of this stuff going on. But uh, he had some great things to say about uh, who he likes on the roster, who he sees as a breakout star, and uh, specifically – the man who we really focused on, and that is uh, Cesaro. He's a big fan of Cesaro, and uh, I think uh, what he had to say about him was pretty, uh, pretty darn good. And, of course, it you know, kind of mimics what everybody else has to say about him, too, because he's basically the most underutilized guy in the company. No doubt about it. But, of course, uh, Mike being who he is, he obviously uh, wrote a really, really good piece on Cesaro. You should definitely... Google Mike Mooneyham's piece on Cesaro. Do whatever you got to do to find it and read it. It's great stuff. And uh, I totally agree on, on that point. Cesaro is great, totally underutilized, should be in the main event. And then besides Cesaro, we had some great chat about some old-school wrestling as well, his old books, um, Tully and Magnum T.A. feud, and, and a ton of other great stuff, including some stuff on Ole Anderson, who I know he's a huge, huge fan of. So, uh 
really, really informative and great stuff for Mike. And uh, we plan on having him back in the future for even longer of a chat. Oh, yeah, totally. We didn't even scratch the surface with him. He had the very controversial book come out in 2002, Sex, Lies, and Headlocks, about the McMahons and the WWF at the time. That's how... uh, that's how long ago that book came out, and that was a head-turner. We kind of touch on it, but we want to have him back on in the future. He will definitely uh, be back, but please check him out. He's been writing for the Charleston Post and Courier for a long, long time, and he'll give you all the information on where to find everything about him at the end of his time. And after we get back from Mike Mooneyham, we will get all into the good old J.R. Jim Ross interview. All right. So joining us on the line tonight is a man who has some very, very huge news coming out of uh, the old Charleston Post and Courier in South Car- Charleston, South Carolina, and that is Mike Mooneyham. Mike is going to be inducted into the 2015 class of the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Legends Hall of Heroes on July 31st in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mike, thank you for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. My pleasure. Glad to be on with you guys tonight. So basically, uh, you know, we talked to Greg Price about the event uh, a couple days ago, and uh, we were getting very psyched for it. And to hear this news <laughs> was uh, fantastic because he was saying that there's going to be more to come. So how did you find out about this, uh, this honor, getting into the Hall of Heroes, and uh, what are your expectations for this great event? Well, I, I tell you, um, if you've never been to, uh, to one of the FanFest events, uh, it's something not to be missed. Uh, it's really hard to describe in words. Uh, it, it is such a, a wonderful gathering of, of fans from all over the country, and you know, particularly fans who grew up watching uh, Mid-Atlantic wrestling. It's, uh, it's four days of wall-to-wall activities. There's something going on from early morning hours till late in the evenings where you know some of the guys are known to uh, indulge in some uh, adult libations. And uh, it's 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 a great event, and and to be named to the Hall of Heroes is just absolutely uh, fantastic. I mean, I, I I've known about it for a little while. Um, it was officially announced this weekend, but uh, to go in with with guys like Ricky Steamboat, Jay Youngblood, and uh, particularly Jim Crockett Sr. is is uh, just a major major honor. Uh, had it not been for Jim Crockett Sr. Um, there would be no fan fest. There would, there would be no Mid Atlantic wrestling. Um, uh, the wrestling world would have been much uh, poor because of it. But uh, it, it's a great honor, and I, I just can't wait to uh, to get down to Charlotte. Now you began bec- uh, covering professional wrestling in the mid '60s, and you've basically you've seen it all. But uh, what stands out to you about your memories of the Mid Atlantic territory? Well, you know, I, I date back quite a bit. Um, I actually started following the business back in the 60s. Um, saw some of the greatest tag team wrestling ever, and tag team wrestling was uh, a major part of the business back then. And uh, there were no greater tag teams than uh, in the Mid-Atlantic area. You know, we had uh, the Scott brothers, Hawk and Hanson, Murphy and Bernard, and uh, assassins and the list goes on and on. So uh, I was kind of weaned on tag team wrestling, but uh, man, I, I, I've got I've I've I was you know had a ringside seat for seeing uh, guys world champions from Luthez to uh, 
to uh, Dory Funk Jr., to Jack Briscoe, to Ric Flair, Harley Race. Um, and, you know, I just I had the best seat in the house to, to see this, the evolution of the business. And uh, Carolinas was one of the hottest territories uh, in the wrestling profession back then. So, you know, I got to see guys come up like Steamboat, Flair, um, all those guys cut their teeth right here in the Carolinas, and um, uh, it's just been a remarkable journey, and it's a journey that's uh, 50 years old. For me, it's 50 years old this year, so uh, I've covered the business for five decades and seen some of the best, seen some of the greatest matches, and, um, boy, you know, I kind of wish I could do it all over again. Oh, yeah, quite uh, a long run and quite a career you've amassed for yourself. Now, you mentioned tag team wrestling a little bit, and mm-hmm. one team in particular that I know that you uh, covered quite a bit was the Minnesota Wrecking Group. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about uh, Ole, Lars, and Gene. Oh, you know, I would have to say uh, when you when you say tag team wrestling, you you've, you know, the Andersons are right at the top of the list. I actually saw the um, the creation of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew right here in the Carolinas. It started with uh, Gene Anderson and, and Lars uh, Lars Anderson. They were the original Wrecking Crew, and then uh, you know two or three years later, they brought in a guy named uh, Al Rockwagowski out of Minnesota, who looked a lot like you know a lot like the other two, and was uh, had the same rugged style. He was younger uh, than than Gene and Lars. Uh, but he, you know, he just personified the uh, the the tag team wrestling that uh, you know they they helped make famous down here, and it was uh, three of the toughest guys ever. I mean, I saw him in a lot of six man tag teams too. Before um, Gene and and Ole became the uh, you know became known as the Andersons. A lot of people don't remember when Lars was down here, and. Uh, uh, that was the original group, but I tell you, Lars and Lars and Gene were pretty good too. You know, Gene and Ole were fantastic, but Lars and Gene were a very tough team. And um, gosh, I saw the Andersons wrestle probably every top team around uh, the territory back then. And you know, I saw them wrestle the faces, and I saw them. some of the best matches. I remember the Andersons in were what they used to call Battle of the Bullies, where uh, they'd match up two you know two heel teams. And uh, gosh, I just remember so many bloodbaths that they had with with uh, guys like Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson, um, the Infernos. Uh, uh, just you know, I mean, talk about hardcore. I think I mean this was you know twenty twenty five years before ECW ever came around. And um, gosh, it was just you know I think back at those days, and I, I, I kind of I lament the fact that the tag team wrestling is. Uh, sort of downplayed these days you know it's more of a, a mid-card deal um, but back in the day tag team wrestling especially in the carolinas i mean those were those were main events and every once in a while you'd have a you'd have a singles main event but that was usually when a world the world champion came into town and defended his title or maybe a regional title such as a southern heavyweight title was defended but uh, most shows back then were, were headlined by uh, by tag team matches now, uh, as we were talking about tag team wrestling and how, you know, basically it's kind of like a mid-card today, yep. but obviously a huge team in the 80s where they're actually main eventing as a tag team was the Rock and Roll Express, and you actually wrote a great piece about how Dusty Rhodes um, 
the American Dream, was a little bit jealous of the Rock and Roll Express. You talk he, he a was. Bit about that? Yeah, Dusty was a little jealous. You know, he um, he uh, he liked to be the main event on most of his shows, and he would really try to book uh, Ricky and Robert in in situations where they they weren't necessarily in the main event. But he found out. You know, when he was, a lot of times he would credit shows that that did really well, and he was on top. But uh, actually, it was uh, the the really the big draw. Well, at least the match that would steal the show were 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 the Rock and Roll Express and matches against guys like, uh, uh, you know, the Midnight Express and the uh, and and some you know uh, Arn Anderson and Tully, some of those guys, some of the good teams back then. So it kind of you know got his goat a little bit that um, they were they had such a huge fan following and uh, you know Dusty tried to um, maybe uh, you know I mean he was promoting them and he wanted to see big houses and everything but uh, you know he had a little bit of that jealousy bug in him and and a lot of guys did because they were you know Rick and Robert were two young you know good looking guys and. Uh, you know, had all of the, the, the female audience and the teenage girls that went wild. And, you know, they were just the end thing. And uh, uh, the fans the fans really just ate that team up. They they loved uh, they loved Ricky and Robert. Now, obviously, you, you've written a lot of great pieces over the years. You even had a, a piece on the Midnight Express um, giving their notice with Cornette at one point. But there was one uh, specific feud not related to tag team wrestling, but one specific feud that really is very interesting, even uh, more so, well, I wouldn't say more so now, but it is still interesting now given their, um, I want to say their relationship together, but the feud between uh, Magnum T.A. and Tully Blanchard. Just talk a little bit about, you know, that feud and almost, um, I want to say their relationship, quote-unquote, uh, today. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was probably one of the, the greatest feuds ever. Uh, in Mid Atlantic Wrestling, and uh, uh, you know the going forward, the sad thing was when when uh, Magnum had that that tragic accident, that car accident that really um, pretty much you know it did. I mean, it ended his of course it ended his in ring career, but uh, you know he was on top. He was uh, uh, earmarked to win the the world uh, the NWA World Heavyweight Title. Uh, but when when that feud erupted between Magnum and Tully, um, I mean, I don't I don't know of any other feud back then that really just uh, could rival that. And a lot of it was over the uh, the U.S. title, which uh, Tully had had won from Magnum uh, that summer in a cage match when uh, when when Tully's valet, Baby Doll, she was disguised as a security guard. Uh, she passed him a foreign object. And uh, you know he knocked Magnum out cold for the win and and for the title, but uh, the the whole feud culminated with a very famous match, and I was honored to uh, to moderate um, a, a Q and A with Magnum and Tully a couple of years ago at FanFest, and, and you know we had the cage up and everything, and it was it was the I Quit match at Starcade '85 in Greensboro, North Carolina. And leading up to this match, I mean, those guys had wrestled practically, you know, every night and and just had classic matches. And there was such a uh, there was such a distinction between the two. I mean, the the, the matchup just really really clicked. You know, it was uh, Tully was arrogant, you know, 
boastful playboy type type character and uh you know you had magnum who was you know was just clean cut uh friendly and you know the the, the fans loved him and uh you know he had that passing resemblance to uh, tom Selleck, who was uh, you know tv star magnum magnum pi back then so you know the the match just held so many really selling points to it and uh uh the the i quit match just you know it 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 put the feud over the top i mean it was uh it was one of the the greatest uh, bloodbaths ever in the carolinas and uh you know that really it put those two guys name into the history books uh, forever yeah definitely and it's kind of weird now right um I believe Magnum is married to Tully's ex-wife, so the feud continues. Yeah, you know that 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 <laughs> that's the thing, and I guess that was the elephant in the room when I did the the Q and A a couple of years ago. Nobody thought I would ask that question, but uh, you know, before before I let him go, I, I I really had to had to pose that question. Of course, you know, I know both of those guys, so I saw I knew a lot of the history and everything, and. Um, yeah, you know, Mag, uh, Tully's ex-wife Courtney, you know, uh, took up with Magnum, and they're still happily married, you know, with kids. And some of Tully's kids live, you know, live with Magnum and Courtney. And uh, of course, Magnum is Terry Allen. And uh, you know, it kind of it's kind of funny how you know the feud sort of continues in a way. But yeah, they both took it really well, and uh, we had a little fun with it. And uh, you know, maybe maybe they're still working a program, but it's no longer about wrestling now. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Now, if I could uh, fast forward just a bit, you wrote Sex, Lies, and Headlocks, The Real Story of Vince McMahon and WWF. Great book. If anybody Thank out you. there uh, looking for a great book to read, that's uh, definitely you. a good one. Now, what was your thought process going into that book? Was it just going to be, you know, just a brutally honest uh, affair of what, what goes on behind the scenes? Yeah, you know, it, it, it the book it probably was about three years in the making. Um, can, you know, hundreds of interviews conducted, very extensive, exhaustive uh, project. But uh, we wanted to, uh, and I and I wrote the book with uh, my co-author Sean uh, Sean Asale, who is a, a senior writer with ESPN, the magazine. Um, and you know, I I coming from a wrestling. The, obviously, the wrestling background and, and Sean was really uh, pretty savvy in, in business of sports and, and stuff like that. We sort of, you know, combined forces to present sort of uh, not only a, a look at just the wrestling business, but also the business side of the business and some background into Vince and how he came into power and, you know, really just, you know, sort of this kind of a maniacal genius who. Who took control of the wrestling business and uh, not only became the uh, the business uh, uh, the business uh, uh, brain behind everything, but also became the most uh, his you know his most uh, well known character in, in the business, Mister McMahon. So, um, but then it, it also you know we also cover a little bit of the re- of the history of the wrestling business. Uh, in the early chapters, talking about the formation of the National Wrestling Alliance, how it got started, and you know, leading up to Vince, how he got involved in the business, and uh, you know, it's um, pretty hard-hitting book at the time. And this was back in uh, 2002, so now we're talking about a book that's 13 years old. But it, uh, 
you know, I mean, so many books have come out since then, but actually in 2002, um, you know, probably it was, uh, a, re- a, a, a non-WW wrestling book was very rare, and uh, it had tremendous success. You know, we're fortunate enough to have it uh, as on the New York Times bestseller list, and uh and very well received, so you know that was, um, uh, you know, it's a good thing for us for sure. It was uh, definitely well received, and I also recall it being quite controversial when it yeah. came out because of the fact it was the first book of its kind post the steroid scandal, post the Ring yeah. Boy scandal, that really went into a large detail about the inner workings of the quote evil empire, and it was also. Mm-hmm following the death of WCW and ECW, so it was really, the timing on it was fantastic. And I also love that book, and it's one of my favorites. And it's a book that I've probably reread two or three times, including bringing it on my honeymoon, but that's besides the point. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm very impressed. Um. (laughs) But outside of of just the historical stuff, you also write about topical wrestling issues. You have some great articles about what's going on in the business right now. And recently you wrote an article about Cesaro still waiting for a shot at the brass ring. Now, it's kind of a two-part question. It is, first, do you still enjoy watching the current product, and why has Cesaro failed to be given that brass ring by management? Well, you know, yeah, I I do enjoy watching the current product. I mean, you know, I have to be very realistic about this, and... I mean, it's, you know, I've done sports for years, and it, it, I have to take really the same approach with, uh, you know, baseball, football, basketball, all sports in general, that things change. And, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people that read my column are, uh, are, you know, fans who have been around forever, and they often lament the fact that, hey, it ain't like it used to be, and, you know, this this isn't, the, the rules are all out of the window. Well, everything changes, everything evolves, and maybe maybe this is not what you would call evolving. Maybe it's devolving in, in certain respects. But it is what it is, and it has a huge following among fans today. And uh, I take it for what it is. It's it's nothing like, you know, the business when, when, I, was, when I was growing up and even started covering the business, um, I would say, you know, 75% of the fans, uh, to them, it was, you know, everything was real. I mean, they were true believers back then. And that gave the, that gave the business a whole different dynamic. Uh, for example, there was something known as heat, and it, it, it was very real. Um, you can say they, there's heat today in the business to an extent, but, you know, there's nothing like heat when fans believe everything they see is real and a fan pulls out a, a knife and goes after a wrestler, I mean, that's real heat. And that's what, that's how it was for many, many years, uh, basically into the 80s and, you know, until uh, they came out and publicly said, you know, this is uh, entertainment. Um, and, and, and a lot of fans had smartened up by then as well. But... Uh, I do enjoy certain parts of it. Um, some things I don't understand. Some of the booking r- remains very illogical, and it's hard to suspend disbelief. Um, but there are some good things. Uh, you know, I just witnessed a pull-apart brawl tonight on Raw between with Lesnar and Undertaker that I thought was very well done. And, uh, you know, really, 
it sets up a huge, huge uh, match at SummerSlam. Some of the times they hit the mark, some of the times they don't. Um, I do think they they miss it quite often with some performers who they deem, uh, you know, not ready for prime time. And you mentioned Cicero, and I, I really am I'm a big fan of, of Cicero. I think he had huge potential coming in. Um, granted, uh, you know, he may not have that personality that uh, projects, you know, like, uh, you know, guys like The Rock and Ric Flair and guys who can who can talk and talk on the mic and, and really, uh, you know, just put everything over. But what he's got is sort of a, you know, to me, he, he reminds me so much of the traditional NWA world champion type guys like uh, Harley Race and uh, Jack, or Jack Briscoe, you know, a guy who has tremendous skills and can work, give you a four-star match every time out if, if he wanted to, but he's just not, you know, and it's it's really, I, I, I honestly think it is a job of creative to make things happen. I mean, this this is a business where you can make dreams happen. You can make guys stars. If they have the goods uh, with a little nudge and a little push, you can you can make them stars. And I think they've missed the boat with Cicero, and I hope it's not too late, because I also believe in uh, today that you can you can really damage a guy by having him on TV, you know, jobbing more than he should, uh, kind of convincing the fans that hey, this guy, you know, we like him, uh, but he's probably never going to be a main eventer. He's not going to sell a pay per view. Um, but he puts on a heck of a match, but, you know, we're not really going to do much with him. You know, guys like that, could um, they could give him a manager. They could change his character around. He still has this, you know, probably pound for pound, the strongest guy in WWE. Um, he's going to give you a tremendous match. Uh, nobody's ever going to go home uh, thinking they got, you know, the short end of the deal by watching a Cicero match because the guy is fantastic. And I think, you know, I just hope it's not too late with him. Um, three, you know, three matches with Cena recently, I mean, they're the best things on Raw. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I hope there's still time with him, but I'm a big fan of his, and I, I think he's tremendous, and I think they could do something with him. Um, he may not be the best guy ever on the mic, but, you know, give him a manager, do whatever it takes. You know, it, it's the job of creative to disguise his weaknesses and really just, uh, you know, uh, display what he can do. And, and what he can do is just, it's amazing. Completely agree. The uh, the two-man power trip is solidly behind you in that uh, general thought of uh, Cesaro needs the shove. But now, as we, we wind this down here, and the big plug is for the NWA Legends Fan Fest. It is coming up uh, July 30th through August 2nd at the Hilton University Place in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our guest, Mike Mooneyham, will be joining the illustrious Hall of Heroes. Before we get to your big plug, pen to paper, what's your WrestleMania main event next year? Uh, WrestleMania main event, that is, it's probably uh, TBA, you know, probably still to be to be announced. Um you know, it, it's it's really up in the air. I think it's a, it, it depends on a lot of different things. Um, I think you have to have Brock Lesnar in there. I mean, I said two years ago, you know, if, if, uh, 
if, if the Rock could work out a schedule and they could bring him in a little bit early, I think Rock and Rock and Brock could be, you know, a, a blockbuster. Um, but you know, I just I, I don't know where where it stands with uh, Rock right now. Um, you know, let's don't uh, sell Seth Rollins short either. He's he's proven to be a pretty good uh, pretty good main eventer, really good on the stick. Great ability, you know. Maybe he will emerge as a as a possible main eventer. Um, but I think it's I think it's still early. I think a lot of things have to uh, you know have to be settled before we get to that so, point. Totally, there is a ton of time. That's just the old speculation that we want to start. Yeah, we love fueling it. the fire. We love it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Love now, again, it's uh, it's coming up the Hall of Heroes Award ceremony at the Hilton yeah. University Place, the NWA Legends Fan Fest. Mike, we really want to have you back for a long-form uh, interview. We think we could go all night with you right now, but we got We have uh, something really key in mind for you. But please tell us where we can find everything there is, Mike Mooneyham. Yeah, um, you go to the uh, go to uh, NWA uh, Legends dot uh, com. The website it gives you all the information. Uh, there are more activities being uh, put on the site every day. But I can I can tell you, and you know, my column this week said this is the last fan fest in Charlotte. Uh, we we talked about it last year being the final uh, due to popular demand. The fans begged Greg Price to please, you know, bring it back one more year, and he relented and he did. And I, I'm just telling you, you know, there will be no, you know, I can pretty much guarantee you there won't be a fan fest in Charlotte next year. Maybe something will happen somewhere else along the line. Probably not with Greg. But if you've never been, don't miss this opportunity. This is the year to do it, July 30th through August 2nd in Charlotte. It's a great motel, great location, headquarters of Crockett Promotions for many years. You'll see people you have not seen in ages. Uh, Wrestlers drop by. I mean, there are so many guys there between uh, guests, uh, vendors, guests, and uh, people who are, you know, making uh, appearances for Greg. It's just Four days, and you get, you know, you have wrestling matches uh, on Saturday. You have wrestling shows on Sunday, and these are not just re- rest. I mean, you see top flight guys on these cards. I mean, the matches, uh, you know, standing O matches, incredible uh, shows, uh, wrestling shows. You know, you've got the training camp going on. You've got uh, Jimmy Hart's going to be there with a, a band, you know, playing some of his old stuff. Um, uh, it's just it's wall to wall activities, and if you've never been, you really and you're a wrestling fan, and especially people who you know grew up in this area, and and followed Mid Atlantic wrestling, uh, do yourself a favor and and attend this event because uh, uh, you know you'll be sorry if you don't. It, it, it's it's that daggum. All right, and we are back here on the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast, Primetime Pause and Chad here as we prepare for quite possibly, and I know it's it's going to be something we probably say over and over again, but quite possibly our greatest interview uh, that we've done. It's nice and long, and it's covering everything that we could possibly throw at him. Good old JR. John, I know it was a highlight. You've been working on him for months finally came through but what are your reflections on good old jr i love 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 talking to jr i mean we mentioned it his one-man show that i saw in philly back in january and since then i've been dying to uh get him on the show i mean 
this is a guy who's the voice of our generation. He's basically the greatest wrestling announcer of all time. Uh, I don't care what generation you're from or, 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 or um, how long you've been a fan. JR is the greatest wrestling announcer of all time. And I'm going to just say that very bluntly. Now, getting to talk to him, it wasn't just about the announcing. We talked about him and talent relations and that of depth, which was just awesome stories about Austin, The Rock, Mick Foley, uh, maybe even some guys he missed out on. I mean, just unbelievable to talk to a legend of that magnitude. And we may have said it before where we were our best interview, but it feels like uh, we just keep getting better and better with these interviews. I mean, we had Steamboat uh, as our most recent guest, and then we just had Jim Ross, and we just such an honor, such a privilege to talk to good old JR. Yeah, we had to go back to January and talk about uh, New Japan and calling Wrestle Kingdom. We had to touch, I mean, we touched on everything. that I really wanted to know about talent relations because he was heavily, heavily brought up in our interview with J.J. Dillon and talking about how JR um, basically came in when J.J. was ready to get out because he had just had enough of the talent relations position, and we kind of uh, really make it a good compliment to the J.J. portion of uh, the talent relations era. And, you know, J.R., I mean, it's it's great to romanticize the Attitude Era, and he really is the voice of a generation, and he is behind all those great moments. But he's so much more than just that announcer. He's done literally every job that you could possibly have. I mean, working for Bill Watts, making his way into Crockett, being there for the dying days of the NWA, then the merger that became WCW, then to come over to the WWF, be fired two, three times, then to get in the spot when Vince McMahon went behind the scenes fully. I mean, the guy's been there. He's done that. He's seen it all. And, of course, his last departure may actually be his most controversial, and he really saw the culmination of that portion of his career end when he left Titan Tower, headed to LaGuardia, contemplated what he was going to do next, and that is where we get ringside, an evening with Jim Ross, which is starting its first ever southeastern leg, and it's going to kick off in Charlotte at the NWA Legends Fan Fest. And, John, you mentioned it in Philly. How much you liked it. We talk about it with JR. But just tell what, what stands out to you the most about your time at that event and what people can expect if they go to an evening with Jim Ross. Uh, great. If, if you do do the VIP, you get a great uh, meet and greet along with uh, some barbecue sauce, which is honestly the best barbecue sauce I've ever had. Um, shocking because they used to love sweet baby rays but this is even better <laughs> so uh i mean i was shocked by how, how good it was um, but besides that it's funny sometimes at these meet and greets it's like hi bye hi bye autograph and maybe they shake your hand or say something for you know 30 seconds or whatever but he really he takes his time with each guest he he treats it like you know like he really appreciates you as a fan and really appreciates you coming out to the show you know you get an autograph you get a picture with him me and him, I mean, we probably had about a five-minute conversation, which is pretty long for uh, for a meet and greet. So it's really cool. But then after that, he had uh, JJ Dillon that was there as a surprise guest, and he did an awesome Q and A, which I would say was about an hour and a half. It was just great stuff. I mean, he'll answer any question you throw out. He's got a great sense of humor. If somebody gets a little wise with him, so really, really fun time. And I just remember saying, I was like. Man, I was like, uh, you know, that's even better than I, I had a high expectation. And it was even better than I thought it was going to be. Uh, that's fantastic. I'm looking forward to heading to the D.C. Improv in August, which there's less than 100 tickets left as of recording this and uh, broadcasting it for uh, for dropping on uh, Thursday. But 
You can check him out as he heads into that southeastern leg. If you haven't seen him yet, get down to Charlotte if you haven't. We can't say that enough. The NWA Legends Fan Fest, it's coming up. It's right around the corner. I can't believe it. I'm hopefully going to be in attendance and rocking it, two-man power trip of wrestling style. But with that being said, prime time, as we send the folks to this interview, we please stress, and I'm, John's going to beat this into everybody, but please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. John, the floor is yours. All right. Like Chad just mentioned, definitely subscribe to us on YouTube uh, and subscribe to us on iTunes as well. Now, when you're on iTunes, we would love if you look up Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling and leave us a review. Feedback is very important. We would love to hear what you have to say. Recently, we had some good, and we would like to keep it going. So please leave us a review on iTunes. Now, also on iTunes, you'll look through our uh, previous guest list, and you'll see some tremendous names we've recently had on. Uh, we've had the Dusty Rhodes' final interview ever. We had on the great Kane from CWB Land. Also, Jesse the Body Ventura, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Harley Race, Diamond Dallas Page, and the list goes on and on and on. So please check us out on iTunes. You will be pretty impressed and confident. Also, like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Talent at Two Man Power Trip. And of course, our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And in the upper left-hand corner, you will see a Bombas link. Bombas is the greatest sock of all time. And if you buy a pair of socks, one does get donated to the homeless. So you are helping by buying. So please, if you want the greatest, most comfortable, it's leisure, it's athletic, it's all the above. If you want the greatest sock of all time, please check out the website on the upper left-hand corner and go to that Bombas link. Now, without any further ado, good old JR, the greatest wrestling announcer of all time, and there's no doubt about that. He's a Hall of Famer. He is Boomer Sooner. Please enjoy this episode with Jim Ross. All right. Well, today our guest is a man who has virtually done it all in the wrestling business. He's been a referee, the head of talent relations. He's been a blogger, a podcaster, a Hall of Famer, and of course, the greatest wrestling play-by-play announcer and storyteller to ever utter a word in pro wrestling or sports entertainment. And if I could be frank to us, he truly is the voice of a generation. He is good old JR. Jim Ross, thank you for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm glad to be with you guys. Thanks very much for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. We, uh, we've been dying to have you on. You're uh, definitely you're at the top of our list when it comes to the greatness that is professional wrestling because, as I said, your voice defines a generation. And for John and myself, who've grown up with good old JR, it's our honor. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I, I've been very fortunate to be able to live my dream and uh, – and continue to do so. So uh, the the wrestling business uh, has been very good to me, and I am just trying to 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 perpetuate it and want to see it continue to grow and do well, and for others to live their dreams, whether it's on podcasting or on TV or or wherever it may be. So uh, it's a 
it's been a love affair of mine for years, and I'm still glad that I have a, my toe in the water, so to speak, as far as the wrestling business is concerned. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fantastic. You're def- definitely on the cusp of all the new things that are going on. And one thing when you mention the word growing that stands out to me is the fact that your critically acclaimed one-man show, An Evening with Jim Ross, is now expanding with its first-ever Southeastern United States tour, and it's going to be kicking off at the NWA Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Legends Fan Fest. So now coming into a completely different market for the one-man show, but definitely an area you're very familiar with. What are you looking forward to with bringing your shows down now to the southeastern part of the United States? Well, anytime you play a market that at one time was a territorial hub, uh, then you generally get a uh, a very educated fan base that are very loyal, and then that re- that then translates into some very compelling and and uh, and, and intriguing uh, question and answers. And that's uh, I found that part of a big part of my show uh, it certainly isn't the fact I have a act or I've got a set act and I'm a comedian. Uh, I, if I'm anything, I, you want to be an entertainer, uh, you want to be maybe a humorist, maybe a quasi-philosopher to some degree, but you damn sure want to be entertaining. So I, I believe that the most entertaining aspects of my shows are the question and answer uh, uh, portion, which we devote about 90 minutes to. And it's all uncensored. There's no topics off limits uh you hope that people will look around at the if there's women and or children present and use good judgment in their questioning but it that sometimes is what it is so uh in those hub cities like charlotte or we're negotiating to go to knoxville uh i'm hoping to play knoxville on friday september the 11th which is the night before the oklahoma sooners visit Knoxville to play the Tennessee Volunteers at Dalen Stadium. So the Friday night before that game, I'm hoping to have a uh, ringside show. And Knoxville, too, was at one time a uh, territorial hub. So generally the difference is is that the Q&As go a little deeper and the fans are a little bit more uh, territorial. The questions are more territory-oriented and back-in-the-day-oriented than they are what's going on, like last week on Raw, for example. So it's it's always going to be fun. You know, Charlotte was a – I got to work for Jim Crockett Promotions at the end, so I, I didn't get a long run with the uh, NWA guys and, and Jim Crockett Promotions, but I got enough of a run to get a, a feel for it. And I'd like to think that I'm a student of the game enough to, to appreciate and respect – what uh, Big Jim Crockett, Jim Crockett Sr., did and what he built uh, in that Mid-Atlantic area. Oh, yeah, totally. In that Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Fan Fest, we've been all over promoting it, uh, you know, with a couple of the participants involved. And it's just, it's, you know, it's, a, it's such a rich area filled with uh, wrestling history, and that's always very good, of course. But if I could just stick with your shows for a minute, what would you say – if you could, the evolution of the shows has been from show one through the last one that you just did. Where has your, uh, you know, were you more nervous, you know, with that first show out, and has the comfortability 
just, you know, gone across the board, or is it still something that when you get out there, maybe you don't know what to expect? Well, when I when I got uh, uh, relieved of my post on September the 11th, 2013 in WWE, I had the decision to make uh, to either retire uh, at 60 or to reinvent. And uh, on the ride from Stanford to LaGuardia to fly home, uh, I the decision just came like it was really no decision at all. Uh, I'm, I wasn't ready to tag out. I wasn't ready to hang up my black hat and, uh, uh, you know, go buy a fishing pole or some golf clubs. Uh, so I reinvented, and then these I got an offer from a promoter in in England in London named Paul Inwood, uh, who's become a good friend and is a great promoter. Does a really good job. I just did the uh, the London WrestleCon over there a few weeks ago with uh, Paul promoted, and he wanted me to come over to work to do four shows, four one night stands, and what they called a spoken word tour. And it would be a meet and greet and type thing, and then I would do a little stand up, for lack of a better term, and then a Q and A. And I had never done one before, so to me, it fit right into the reinvention phase of my philosophy. So, anytime you are going into new territory, uh, the propensity to be nervous, apprehensive, uh, whatever is there, no matter how long you've been around. If you really are devoted into having a good show and not phoning anything in and just taking the cash, uh, you want to make sure that you're you're going to be entertaining and and uh, that people get their value for their investment. So I had a lot of nerves and uh, you know trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do uh, as far as my format was concerned. So all four of those shows evolved. The first show was in uh, Cardiff, Wales. The second show was in London. The third show was in Manchester. And then the uh, last show was in Glasgow, in Scotland. And so from Cardiff to Glasgow, the shows changed because I kept I kept rebooking the finish. I kept rebooking the cards. Not any different than when I was doing the booking for, of the live events in WWE. If you start off with a card on a tour and you find that you've booked a match or two that the chemistry is just not there for whatever reason, uh, you have the most powerful weapon in all of pro wrestling in your hand. It's called an eraser. And you simply change the matches around and rebook your card and don't have the pride or the uh, ego to say, I could, I needed to change this. So that's kind of what I did on my tour. I kept changing and changing and that's where I found out that the most compelling part of my show, people enjoyed hearing the stories, but I figured that I could get to those stories through the Q&A. So in other words, you could ask me a question about uh, the territory days working for Bill Watts, and then I could segue, I'd give you your answer, and then I could segue that answer into a Bill Watts story that early in the tour I was doing at the beginning in my quote-unquote monologue. So uh, everything keeps evolving. Uh, I think today I'm much more comfortable doing it. And uh, so I'm a long way from being polished, uh, but I'm better than I was when I started. 
and just like on my uh, work as uh, as a broadcaster, I never called a perfect show. I've never called my best match. Uh, I still think that my best matches are still to come. That's my mindset. And I'm my own worst critic. There are things that I have called that I have never gone back and watched just because I cringe at my own work. So uh, I think my, the comfort level is still there, but if one gets too comfortable, then you kind of take things for granted. And once we start taking anything, our relationships, our job, uh, our, our schoolwork, uh, whatever, for granted, uh, generally uh, negative things begin to occur. And much like if I was a sales manager, the thing I would keep my eye on for all my salespeople is to make sure that none of them, uh, if they were commissioned, uh, found their comfort zone. So if they found that they were selling enough product and making enough money that they feel cool about that, I know I have a problem brewing because the comfort zone of life is something that we can't, uh, you can't live in that comfort zone and grow. So uh, I think... I think my show has grown, and when I do Charlotte, for example, my narrative in the beginning will be a few Mid-Atlantic stories and some Charlotte stuff. You know, there'll be some Ric Flair stories and things of that nature. Uh, my own uh, working there with Bob Cottle when I first came aboard there, so uh, I kind of customized a little bit uh, to that that way. But uh, it's been a growth, it's been a growing period, and. But I'm really enjoying it. I enjoy the association connection with the fans. It's an intimate setting. They see me in a different light. You know, I'm not yelling slobber knocker to the top of my voice all the time. I'm, I'm telling stories. But uh, and hopefully there. And so far, knock on wood, it's been successful. Now I went to the show back in Philly in January uh, during the uh, Royal Rumble weekend. Awesome show. I love how. In the show, besides the Q and A, there's also a surprise guest, and the surprise guest that uh, night was uh, or that day, excuse me, was JJ uh, Dillon. So that was awesome. And also another great part of it was obviously the meet and greet with you, got to meet with you. But it wasn't just hi, bye, here's an autograph. We talked a little bit, and I asked you about calling uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling and calling the big show, and uh, we talked a little bit about some of the stars over there. But what was your impression of calling? Wrestle Kingdom 9, and what was your impression of New Japan and those awesome stars that they have over there? Well, I'll answer your question, but I want to ask you a question. When I did the meet and greet with you in Philly, uh, did you ever perceive at any point in time that I was just going through the motions? No, definitely not, because it's funny. I've been to a million autograph shows, you know, with like a million different guys, and sometimes, you know, sign, hi, bye, shake a hand, maybe they don't, uh, bye. But nope, you were, with, you know, I was watching with other people that shake their hand, you look them in the eyes. Any question I had, you answered it, and it wasn't just quick. You gave him a real, concise, truthful answer. So it was, it was awesome. It was almost like, wow, I got to talk to Jr. for five minutes. You know, this show's even better than I thought it would be. <laughs> well, you know, the I appreciate that. There, there's a there, and the reason I ask that question is that you pay a little extra for those VIP tickets, and I appreciate everybody investing money in my shows. The VIP, I want the VIP experience to be positive. And uh, and I don't. I'll never go through the motions. The day that I get tired of interacting with wrestling fans is when I really need to to buy that fishing pole and, and uh, go fishing. So I'm glad you had a positive experience. And I think that's a part of my show that 
I don't really talk about a lot, but and I probably wouldn't even brought it up today if I didn't know if you hadn't brought up the fact that you were there in Philly. Uh, that little that little room in Philly was quite the little uh, venue. I'd never been there before. It was like walking into a an old time fight club. It was uh, <laughs> it was really a Spartan esque, wasn't it? And it wasn't. Yeah. And yep. I don't know how we could have got any more people in there. Uh, it it was just it was shoehorned in. It was a really a cool crowd. Uh, and I don't have a I don't have a surprise guest at every show when it's convenient and I can get somebody that I think that the audience will will enjoy talking to or, or, or asking questions of I'll go for it and you know JJ lives in uh, Delaware so when I called him he was a anxious for he and I to get together uh, and when you get to be older you start uh, embracing those memories and those opportunities to see your old buddies a little bit more. That's why I'm excited about one of the reasons I'm excited about going to Charlotte uh coming up soon. Uh so, you know, that's a that's a real cool deal. Now the New Japan thing was really a neat experience. I got number one, I I patched up my relationship with Jeff Jarrett. I've always thought that his wife was one of the coolest ladies in the business, and before she got in the business, she was a she's a piece of work. She's just absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, Jeff and I had not spoken since I think around '99 or something when he went to WW, WCW, uh, and that had that was silly. We should have got that out of the way, and we did. And I'm all for his success in Global Force Wrestling. Hope they do great. Uh, so that was cool. The experience uh, in in Tokyo, renewing my friendship with Tiger Hattori, uh after knowing him for 25 or 30 years was really, was good. Uh, I got I found out that I had a lot of fans that on the New Japan roster that followed me on Twitter at JRSBBQ that I never knew. Uh, I had great conversations with uh, Tanahashi who was the champion at the time, and Nakamura. Uh, so uh, Nakamura speaks pretty good English, as a matter of fact. And uh, and I, then I and I had done a lot of preparation. I enjoyed working with Matt Stryker in a, little, in a different role, in a different mindset, in a different environment than we had uh, worked together, which is only briefly in WWE previously. Uh, so the whole thing, I mean, it, the... It, you, I wish would I wish I could have gotten there a day earlier, so I could have kind of gotten a little bit more used to the uh, the, the time change and the go over the jet lag. That's probably my only regret, but I uh, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the fact I got a an 11 by 17 television format run sheet. It was a one sheet, and it was all in Japanese. I enjoyed the fact that uh, the truck forgot that we were there and that uh, didn't. they forgot to count us on the air. They forgot to count us to the video packages. There were only two, I think. And they forgot to count us off the air. We heard nothing from the truck the entire four hours. Hmm. And uh, I think it was a little bit disconcerting for Matt, uh, me being the grizzled veteran, you know, we just forged ahead and called our show. And uh, I think, you know, we settled in. And by the time we got out of those multiple-person matches in the early part of the show, which are hard to call anyway, even if you're familiar with all the guys, 
and the pace of those matches are so frenetic that uh, it's hard to keep up with what's going on. By the time we hit uh, the mid-card until the end, I thought that uh, our timing had gotten on the same page, and I enjoyed working with Matt a great deal. He's very bright, and uh, but it was a different presentation. We want, I wanted it to be for the viewer to understand who they were seeing, why the match was important, to understand the strategies and the holes that were being utilized, and to feel like they were watching a mainstream sporting event. That was the goal. And not to say things that were eyeball rolling or ridiculous. And I think we succeeded in that by and large. Uh, so I had a I had a phenomenal time. I And you wonder, you know, hey, look, can you, can you still get it done? Can you still do your work? And I, I think that we represented the... Uh, the brand, and, uh, and as far as I was concerned, uh, listening back to that one, I thought that we did uh, a decent job. I think that uh, there's a little gas left in the tank, and any time New Japan would want me to do something for them with the style that they utilize, I would uh, jump at the opportunity. Now, with New Japan, obviously you mentioned Tanahashi and Nakamura, who are just A-plus stars. But then, of course, Okada is, is absolutely amazing. Oh. He's actually probably, I think, the best. And then, obviously, you I love him. I love Okada. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Okada, I should have mentioned Okada in that group, too. Uh, the Rainmaker is amazing. Uh, 26, 28 years old, young, great look, good-looking kid, uh, as beautiful a drop kick as you'll ever see, great psychology for a young man. Uh, really personable, very, very polite. They treated me like I was special. I mean, they treated me with, uh, it was amazing uh, the respect that I got from that from the guys in that roster, the, especially the young ones. A lot of the older guys I'd met before, and we were just buddies and, you know, shooting the breeze and laughing and those that spoke enough English. And my English is not that good either, so, you know, what the hell. Uh, but uh, Okada, I'm glad you brought him up. He's He's absolutely uh, uh, a, a, a beautiful talent in, in in a variety of ways. So, but I'm sorry I interrupted you. I, sh- I should have mentioned him in the beginning. Uh, he's one of my favorite talents to watch on TV now, uh, in, in any promotion. Hey, no problem at all. Now, you guys, I mean, you guys called the card perfectly. Especially the second part of the show was absolutely amazing. Especially Nakamura and Ibushi, and then um, Tanahashi and Okada was amazing. But another guy that was part of that show, a guy Jin, if you will, AJ Styles has been knocking it out of the park. And you were once quoted as saying, "You can't believe you missed the boat on that guy." What are your thoughts on AJ Styles? Well, I love him. He's uh, AJ has evolved and grown into a uh, one of the best uh, in-ring performers in the world. Uh, he's a very professional family man. He's a credit to any locker room that he's in. You know, when when my crew, my talent relations staff, was going over uh, the talent that we were we could acquire, uh, AJ was when the, when WCW was we bought him out at WWE. AJ was kind of off the radar. As a matter of fact, he was off the radar. He wasn't getting much work uh, on TV. He was very young. Uh, he was still really in the infancy of his career. And I don't know at that time, and it's it's funny, you know, I had him on my podcast uh, 
which is available on iTunes. You go back and listen to that show. It's kind of, I'm kind of embarrassed that here he is. Here's one of the greatest workers in the world, and and I pride myself on having a pretty good eye for talent, based on some of the guys we've signed over the years. And I missed, I whiffed, uh, but it's the AJ Styles that we all admire today. Uh, at, at his own admission, was not the AJ Styles that I could have hired back in the day. And certainly an argument can be made, and maybe rightfully so, that, well, J.R., you should have seen the fact this kid was going to grow into this uh, world-class worker. And uh, But I didn't. I missed on that one. So i got no problem admitting that I made an error, uh, but I'm really happy that he's done well. Quite frankly, uh, he's probably done as well, if not better, by being able to work where he wanted and being able to be utilized as he was, and now he's calling his own shots. He's making a great living. He's working, you know, uh, as many dates as he chooses. He works where he wants, when he wants, when he's not in New Japan. But he's the AJ's, a, you know, he's a top five, ten guy in the world. So I'm, I'm really happy for him. And plus, he's a good human being. He's a good father, uh, you know, Gainesville, Georgia boy, and uh, so I, I have all the time in the world for AJ Styles. I, I'm just wishing nothing but the best. It's funny you said that he was a miss, but not many misses from you uh, as you were the head of talent relations. I mean, I could name probably a million guys, and uh, you know, and did still keep going. But three that really stick out: uh, Mick Foley, The Rock, and a little guy by the name of Stone Cold Steve Austin. When you brought them over, did you initially see, you know, them being basically the three of the biggest stars ever in the history of the business? Well, it's like or it's like going to a great restaurant. It's like going to one of those. Uh, it's like going to New Jersey and stopping one of the one of those diners that has a menu that's like twenty pages thick. There's a lot of really good things on the menu. It depends on what your taste is. All those guys brought something different. Every page you turn on the menu. Uh, you turn to a different uh, section. There's the Italian section, the, you know, the steaks or the, the whatever. Uh, everybody brought something different to the dance. Uh, Foley, I knew from helping him get booked in in WCW from uh, Dallas, uh, and was always a fan of his work. Uh, never thought he'd have a long career because of the abuse that he he gave himself and his body. But I loved loved his character, the character, the TV character, and the character of the human being. So, uh, and such a bright, articulate guy. He was exactly what he didn't look like. He didn't look like he was a bright, articulate guy, but he was, and he is. Uh, Steve was that middle linebacker mentality, that Buckus, Ray Nitschke, Ray Lewis type headhunter that never played a perfect game, that's still looking for that big game, uh, that felt slighted, that had a chip on his shoulder, uh, and but was athletic and competitive and, ha- and, and just had the wrestling aptitude that was uh, scary. Great instincts, great instincts. Different cat than Mick. Austin was not nearly as social as Foley. Uh, Austin trusted no one. Uh, he just was a different breed of cat. 
and but I thought, man, he's a player. He is a player. He didn't he didn't dance to the right music in the WCW. He didn't he wasn't the right political party, so to speak. Uh, he had some brushes with greatness there, but nothing sustained as he should have. And then The Rock had no experience. Both Austin and Foley were veterans. They had territory experience. Uh, Dwayne had no experience except you know, being born, being a third generation guy. Uh, but he was a natural. He's a natural at everything. And his personality jumped off the page. His smile jumped off the page. Uh, when I watched him work out in the ring, I watched him run the ropes. It was poetry in motion. He was very athletic. Had great feet. Uh, he had a unique look with his ethnicity. Uh, he was college educated and agreed. I liked that because it meant he started a project and finished it. Uh, so I, I enjoyed that. I, the irony is that Austin didn't graduate, but he stayed in college four years. Uh, Foley graduated with a degree of the th- three guys you ask about, and so did Rock. I like guys that start something and finish it, and uh, that means they'll maybe they'll do that in, in their work with uh, with the company if they get hired and then they make it. So all, all of them had a different story, all of them had different traits. Uh, I had to work the hardest to get Mick hired. Uh, Vince didn't know who Austin was because uh, he, he didn't watch WCW. And he didn't watch ECW to any degree. All Steve was basically doing ECW was promos, uh, by and large, a little wrestling. Uh, Foley had tried to come to work for WWE several times and had been turned down. And my persuasive powers, uh, being new on the job, got Mick hired. uh, Because Vince wanted me to know what it was like to to really believe in someone, and then when they didn't make it, how do you react? Because Vince really didn't think Nick was going to make it, and uh, but then he soon changed his mind and, and became a big Foley fan. And uh, and the, Nick had a great run there. Became very made seven figure income, you know, and he wasn't sleeping in his car and all those crazy things. And then The Rock was just. Uh, you know, he was can't miss in my view, and and we paid him at the time the most money that I'd ever offered anybody to sign a developmental contract, and uh, uh, I just thought that he could be, uh, he was going to be special. Uh, as you know, we didn't screw him up creatively, and he didn't, he didn't have a some kind of tick or a, or a gene in him that was going to just not allow him to stay out of stay out of the trouble. Uh, he was a can't-miss guy, and he was that, obviously. He he, he didn't miss. And uh, and I don't know if you guys are a fan of Ballers on Sunday nights on HBO. It's one of my favorite shows, and it's so real because I've been around so many guys like that in the wrestling <laughs> And when I worked in the, with the Falcons and NFL, there's a, it's scary real. And... Uh, so they're doing a great job. They got another season; had already been renewed for another year. So I'm very proud of Dwayne, and uh, he's built uh, an amazing business with uh, Seven Bucks Entertainment. 
Yeah, he's, uh, he's on that untouchable level now, and anything he touches uh, is basically an overnight sensation. But, you know, you talk about that being head of talent relations, and you took over for J.J. Dillon, whom we spoke with months ago, and J.J. Uh, Dillon classified it as being a thankless job. Now, with you bringing in those three guys, now you brought in a, b- a bunch of guys, but those three are the big standouts. Do you think in the transition from J.J. to yourself that it was time for that new blood to come in and it really, I mean, quote, either the new generation or the birth of the Attitude Era. Like, do you think it was really time for a changing of the guard overall with J.J. stepping down? I thought J.J. did a phenomenal job, and I have the utmost respect for J.J. He's right. It is a thankless job. It was a thankless job when I had it. I, I had one recruiting class, or we had one recru- recruiting class that uh, – Included, uh, let's see, it included um, Brock Lesnar, John Cena, Dave Batista, and Randy Orton, along with Shelton Benjamin, who was the best pure athlete of the group. So uh, we had a lot of good good luck and we hired a lot of good guys, but still a thankless job. You still got they're still human beings. Everybody still has issues. You gotta correct issues. You gotta be the disciplinarian. And I was doing the payroll, so the payoffs are done discretionarily. That's always a cause for consternation. So uh it's a thankless job. And when you gotta let somebody go, that's never fun. Uh and and there's always somebody's always gotta go. It's like a football team. It's it's that's why they have a 53-man roster in the National Football League. You can only carry so many. And when you want somebody to be added to the roster, you got to do the math, and somebody's got to say adios. So I don't know if it was time for a change. Uh, Vince was Vince allowed me to do my job differently than J.J., and maybe that, and I think that's uh, McMahon's uh, uh, management philosophy. Uh, he wanted to change, and he. So my my point is is that when JJ hired talent, he had to get it approved or run the talent by Vince. When I hired talent, by and large, so there's some exceptions, but when I hired most of the talents. Uh, I I hired them without consultation. Uh, well, on several occasions, more often than not, with Vince because he was involved and busy doing other things. And I thought that was my job. I was going to be responsible for managing them. I was going to take the responsibility if they were if they were amiss. Uh, so. I didn't. I, we, JJ had a different job description in that respect than did I. So, uh, you know, I, that was. That's, I'm not saying that negative about JJ because I love JJ. It's just that Vince w- saw that the department needed to make be ma- have some changes made structurally, and I was just happened to be the next next batter up. Right. Uh, Bruce Bruce Pritchard had that job for a while, but it, he it didn't fit his uh, skill sets. Or his personality, he didn't like it, uh, so uh, I was put in that role and 
was there for a long, long time, and I had a I had a great run. I was very, very fortunate. I had a real, really, really good team around me. Jerry Briscoe will never get the credit that he deserves for uh, scouting, and you know we probably wouldn't have signed Brock Lesnar if it hadn't been for Jerry Briscoe. Uh, and and we, we recruited Brock Lesnar for two years, uh, but uh, Jerry Briscoe is the primary reason that we signed Brock Lesnar. And then when he signed him, then I he, he uh, I I acquired him, and uh, so it was. A, it's always been a team effort there, and but Jerry was a viable member of the team. And then, of course, then the developmental program that we had, the forerunner of today's uh, performance center, uh, certainly uh, was important. You know, uh, the guys that worked in. Danny Davis guy, the Danny Davis, uh, Les Thatchers, uh, you know, uh, all the guys. I don't leave out any names, but all the guys that worked for the talent. You know, those guys were they were uh, Al Snow and Tom Pritchard. All those guys were key key members of uh, of uh, coaching, teaching fundamentals to a bunch of green guys. Brock Lesnar was a pro wrestler. He wasn't even a wrestling fan. The Rock wasn't a, wasn't refined. Dory Funk Jr. was one of the guys that was uh, one of my coaches, you know. And, and we he refined guys like Edge and Christian. Uh, he took he helped turn Kurt Angle, who wasn't a pro wrestling fan. We signed Kurt Angle, so uh, I'm very proud of my uh, lineage of the guys that we hired and uh, and the guys that we. We hired to work with them, and all I was ever trying to do was to do what was best for WWE, because that's how I was raised. But my father and my mother is that if you're going to work for somebody, you know, and you're going to take their money, you always give them the best effort. Put the you always put the goose that lays the golden eggs before you put yourself. And uh, that's, that's, just, that's, that's way that's, that's the way I worked, and uh, it was a simple formula. But we got lucky on some guys and uh, had some good classes, and so I don't really know if it's time for a change. So I don't know if it was time for JJ to go. JJ was very burned out. It was a very thankless job. He had had it for a long time. You can only take it so long, and uh, you know, uh, uh, and we were in a real tough spot at that time. Revenues were down. Uh, wrestling people were taking drastic cuts in pay. Including JJ, including myself, and others in the wrestling side of the business, and uh, so uh, it was a challenging time for a lot of people, and a lot of people in the company uh, bolted. They folded their, they cleaned off their out their desk and they left. They deserted. I'm not saying JJ, JJ deserted. Office people. They thought when they saw these these guys leaving and they heard about the pay deductions and all that, they they bolted. They jumped off what they perceived to be a sinking ship. And all I can tell you is that Vince told me it took five minutes. I'm going to cut your pay or I'll release you. And here's what I'll pay you. And if you want to stay, uh, I will. When when things change, you'll never regret financially that you stayed. And he kept his word, and to the letter, and he uh, paid me more than, uh, and I earned more there than I ever dreamed, ever dreamed, 
in my lifetime in the restaurant business. And that's because Vince kept his word to me about how I would be taken care of if I stayed loyal, of which I did. And that's that's fantastic because that's a time you know time period prior to the attitude era, just on the cusp of it, where you know sometimes I think people forget how tight the business really was getting at that point. But now you mentioned Vince, you mentioned uh, talent relations. You were also still announcing while you were doing talent relations, but. Let's go back a little bit to when you started announcing and you're working for the Cowboy. Now, yep. I know it's you, you probably said it a million times, but I just, you know, I'd love to hear your take on it. Working for the Cowboy, Bill Watts, of course, and working for Vince McMahon, and I guess at, in the eras you worked for them, what were are there any similarities with them, or were they just completely on two different pages? Well, <clears throat> ironically, excuse me, uh, ironically, uh, I'm working on my autobiography, <clears throat> pardon me, and uh, I've been lucky enough to write uh, with the help of my wife. Dennis Brent was involved in that process. We've written a couple of New York Times bestsellers, one a cookbook and then the Stone Cold Truth. Uh, but I'm finally getting around to writing my own story and uh, working with a fellow by the name of Scott Williams who worked on Bill Watts' book and Terry Funk's book. Uh, brilliant lawyer out of Houston, and Paul O'Brien, who wrote the three best wrestling novels I've ever picked up, called uh, Blood Red Turns Dollar Green. And any wrestling fan that hasn't read Blood Red, hasn't read Blood Red Turns Dollar Green, I I strongly suggest you you read them. They're the books, they're works of fiction, uh, but it's kind of like the Mafia meets the Suplex, and it's really really cool and. He does, it's just amazing. He's an amazing wordsmith. So I'm working on that, but uh, uh, I'm going back and remembering a lot of things. Uh, but the the Vince McMahon, Bill Watts, alpha male personality started for me in my life long before I ever dreamed of meeting either man. They started with my father. And you talk about alpha male. My, you know, McMahon and Watts got nothing on my dad. Nothing. He was 6'3", 275, wore size 15 ring, 14 boot, uh, monster of a guy. And uh, he was old school to the core. He was my John Wayne. There was no gray area. It was, this is black, this is white, this is the way it is. And he was a man's man. So when I went to work for Bill, uh, it was like going to work for my dad. Watts was a he was a taskmaster. He had one way of doing it, his way, and the right way. His way was the right way because he was paying you to do a job. So whatever he needed you to do, you did the best of your ability, unless you didn't want to cash the checks. Uh, and I never failed to cash a check. Uh, so uh, Watts was I was I was ready for that whole deal. It was just a new genre, new new terms, new business. I thought I would have a summer job in pro wrestling after promoting these uh, spot shows in college and being quote unquote discovered by Bill Watts. I thought I'd have a nice summer job. I'd go back after the summer, finish my last semester of college, and I'd have some cool stories to tell my buddies over nickel beer night and uh 40 years later uh, i'm still you know i'm still i'm still i guess 
waiting to go back and register for that last semester of school. So then going through my run with all the chaos and the dysfunctional corporate family and WCW, and then getting finally to WWE, uh, Vince was a breath of fresh air because you you did have one decision maker there, and that didn't that did, was not the case in WCW while I was there. It was chaotic, but Vince's uh, the thing about Vince is that other than my dad, who had always had two jobs to make ends meet, and one was working on our farm, which is deadly manual labor. Uh, I never met anybody in my life that works as hard as Vince. So by the time I got to Vince, I was ready for Vince. And and we had, uh, contrary to what most people are going to think, uh, we had a one-on-one. When we were one-on-one, it was one of the most positive, rewarding, uh, uh, motivating experiences and relationships I've ever had. I, I love working with him. Uh, but... You know, uh, he 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 is a very he's a unique dude, and uh, but he, he was challenging. But I was raised in a challenging environment, so it really wasn't a big deal. And I wouldn't be writing about that. People are going to say, well, "I don't know, boy, this is I would have never guess that." So I'm kind of giving away a little bit of my book. But uh, he's a uh, he's a he's a the hardest working human being I've ever been around. My dad would be 1A, uh, and Vince is going to be 70 years old the day after SummerSlam, and is still going strong, still lifting heavy, uh, still going to gym. He's doing things that I don't know of another near 70-year-old person ever in my life uh, does. And uh, but But training is his hobby. He he likes to work, you know. He's he he has said sleep is our enemy. He loves to work and he loves the business. And uh, you know whether you like his philosophies or his product or how he how he produces TV or whatever, that's certainly one's prerogative. But uh, to think that he doesn't like the business anymore or he's not invested emotionally in it uh, is somewhat ludicrous and it's damn sure not because he needs another payday he's got quite a bit of money i think he's probably good for his lifetime his kids lifetime their kids lifetime etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh challenging yes but uh always uh but it was always i thought it was exhilarating i thought it was exciting because i love the business we shared that passion and I look. I tell people it's this way. Look, it's like being on a coaching staff. You got a head coach. Vince was a head coach. I might want to run the ball more. He wants to run four wides and throw the ball around the field. We'll argue that point. He'll win the argument more often than not because he's the head man. But at the end of the day, we both love the game. And uh, so that's kind of how I look at that deal. You know, we did have some philosophical differences, but I just don't believe that's a major deal. I just because we both love the business, we just had, we both love our destination, but we both would be willing to take different routes to get there. 
Well said. Now, as we wind it down just a little bit here, one question I was always very, very curious of. You worked with, as far as announcing, you worked with Cornet as your partner, Terry Funk, Paul Heyman, oh, my God, Michael Hayes, Jerry Lawler, even Macho Man, Jesse Ventura, the great Tony Schiavone, the great Gordon Soley, my personal favorite, you with Dusty Rhodes, but who would you say is your favorite partner that you were ever announced with, or can you even pick one? Well, that <clears throat> that'd be like saying, who's your favorite child? Uh, <laughs> all those guys are friends. Uh, are If they're not friends, they're people I respect. I... Uh, I had I had a very unique relationship with Ventura uh, that was negative. Uh, we should have been so much better than we were, but I was egocentric and jealous of what he was making based on what I was making, and I was unprofessional, and I did not hold up my end of the bargain because I didn't want us to be good. I didn't want to work with him, and it was all for the wrong reasons. Uh so Jesse was Jesse and Jr. should have been uh, pretty damn good, and I don't think that we were as good as we could have been. And I take all the responsibility for that. Uh, Paul Heyman uh, had the uh, ability, because of our relationship, he was like a a younger cousin that would come from New York to Oklahoma to spend the summer. And would drive me batty, crazy. Hmm. Uh, but he was so amazingly talented and intelligent, uh, and got it, and had instincts and aptitude that were beyond the pale. Uh, and I gave him his first break, got him on national TV, got him recognized on national television on, w- on WCW on TBS, because the booking committee didn't want to work with him as a talent. He was a handful. You can have him. I, there was no there was no argument. They were glad to give him to me, and I thought we did. Uh, we had great chemistry. I love working with Paul. He brought out the best in me. He would legitimately piss me off, and uh, whether he meant to, now he'll tell you he meant to, and it was all a big grand plan. That's Paul, uh, but he did, and it would fire me up, and I could take my work to another level than then sometimes I would do the same thing to him. And then he would he would lash out and heal venom. And uh, so he was very, very uh, compelling to work for. The guys, the wrestlers that I worked with, you know, Terry Funk was very underrated. Dusty would make up words. You know, <laughs> if, if Dusty would say a word that started uh, with the same letter, he just, and he made the rest of it up, he thought he was doing okay. And uh, he was hilarious. And, uh, you know, the great thing about Dream was is that he was writing most of this television that we were doing. And so he knew exactly what he wanted out of it. So he would he would give me the Reader's Digest version in a little bit of, in a mini production meeting that might take 10 minutes to go over a two-hour show, and we were done. We went out and called the ball game. So whatever happened, whatever you put on a monitor, we called it. And he was fun to work with. And I think some of my most underrated broadcasts are with Dusty Rhodes. I was amazingly surprised at how good Terry Funk was. Uh, and that was a 
just a, a joy. People that don't under people that haven't heard us work together, not because of me, but because of him, should listen because you'll find, hear that he had great psychology. He was a terrific, terrific showman and storyteller, and uh, he put the talent over. A lot of wrestlers that do commentary just want to put themselves over, and Terry was not in that ilk. Uh, and Jim Cornette, hard to say that he was, couldn't have been as if that was his focus and he wasn't a manager. He arguably could have go down as one of the very, very best of all time, much like Bobby Heenan. Cornette was just from south of Mason-Dixon line, but he had the great natural comedic timing. He had a sharp wit. He knew how to get talent over. He knew when to get in and he knew when to get out. Some of the great, the beauty of being a great announcer or a great announced team is what you don't say or when you do lay out. So I've been really, really lucky. I've had a lot of guys that carried me along and made me look better than I was. Uh, and But to say there's one guy, you know, Lawler and I had the great run in WWE when it was so competitive and people were hanging on every word. The Monday Night Wars were so, uh, you know, topical. And I thought that we represented WWE well in that era. And uh, people, I get it all the time, I get it every day. We want Jr. and the King back. We want Jr. and the King back. Well, you know, that's that's just quite frankly likely never going to happen. Uh, but uh, we had a great uh, run. It just so happened that it came when the ratings were got to be massive, and I thought we held our end of the bargain of storytelling up very well. I think we did our best work when Mr. McMahon was the top villain on the show because it really allowed us to work kind of unencumbered and let us be ourselves and let it uh, and be organic and use our instincts more uh and we were we had good instincts because both of us were territory guys both of us were lifelong fans and we both got got it that we are there to get the talent over and by getting the talent over you organically and naturally get yourself over but you're but you do it in that order talent first issues angles storylines all that and if you do a good enough job of that, then you will gain some popularity as a as a broadcaster. So Jerry and I had the longest, most successful run of any of my partners, but all of them were fun to work with. Bob Cottle, I love working with Bob Cottle. Uh, one of the greatest. Here's a guy that was the voice of Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, was the play-by-play voice, and, he, and they get this new guy in named Jim Ross with no black hat. And, oh, Bob, by the way, you're going to start doing color, and this new guy's going to take your spot. And he'd been the voice of that brand for decades. And he never held any animosity toward me. Uh, he, he was my writing partner. He was my friend. I think he's the most underrated announcer that I ever worked with in my life. And so that was really cool. Dusty Rhodes had the vision to put Tony Schiavone and I together on Clash of Champions 1. Two play-by-play guys, I thought. And and when uh, in those days, uh, Tony was as good as it got. He did a terrific job. Uh, he I, and hey, how you want to do this? I said it's real easy. You're the tenured guy on TBS. You get us in the segments. You get us out of the segments, and we'll share it in the middle. And I love working with him. 
I just did a podcast with him that's going to air in a few weeks. I have a new podcast that drops every Tuesday night at 9 Eastern. Uh, this week, for example, John Pollock of the Fight Network, very intelligent guy. God almighty, he's so much smarter than me. It's, I just want to be quiet and let him go. Uh, we talk about battle, WWE Battleground, and we talk about uh, WrestleMania in Texas, Ring of Honor, the chaos in TNA, and uh, the New Japan. You know, uh, who are they with? Or are they going to be with more than one? They're going to date several people. You know, not go steady. Uh, <laughs> John's a USC guy, MMA guy. So, podcast-wise, Shivani and I could tape one about a week ago, and it was uh, it was absolutely phenomenal. Just like old times. I think the last time that the, we the last time he and I did a podcast was the last year during the All Star season because a uh, week because he's the voice of the Gwinnett Braves the AAA farm team of the Atlanta Braves. Uh, so I catch him on his All-Star Week break. Uh, that show got did well over a million downloads, like a million eight or something. Uh, so people wanted to hear he and I together again and tell these stories. So uh, there's one of those shows are coming up, but the show that airs this week is very smart. We don't try to reinvent history like some uh, wrestling podcasters do. Uh, we don't uh, take pot shots at people. Uh, I do my normal humor that sometimes is misconstrued by some. But uh, it, was, uh, it was a good show. But Tony's uh, podcast will be good, and I love working with him. And then I got those few at-bats with Gordon Soley. The, the I Quit match, Flair, Funk, Gary Hart at ringside, um, uh, Referee uh, Tommy Young, Gordon doing color, me doing play-by-play, and Sully, you know, as usual, you know, he did the less is the less is best. Uh, you know, five words, five letters, two words, I quit. Hmm. And uh, yeah, we had a little uh, flask at ringside to make sure that he would uh, have a little taste of uh, alcohol during the show. And uh, but uh, not enough to uh, adversely affect what we were doing in a two-hour broadcast. And during commercial breaks, he would have a little sip. But I, that was one of the big honors for me in my career, one of my, my lifetime. Is if I picked out one show just to go back and watch one match because of all the participants, Ric Flair and his Terry Funk had reinvented himself. Tommy Young, arguably the best referee ever at least one of the top three or four or five. Gary Hart, amazing manager. If you can find Gary Hart's book, if you're lucky, you should read it. But it's down near impossible to get your hands on. Why it's not being reprinted is a mystery to me. And then Gordon Soley, and then I'm tagging along for the ride. It was just a amazing amalgamation of talent and an I quit match where the heel actually cheated to gain unfair advantages where both men sold, they genuinely sold and made you feel and have emotionally invested in the match, and the heel didn't go, took a shortcut. He loudly shouted, I quit. So the professionalism of Terry Funk added to the legacy and the legend of Ric Flair, and all the parts came together in that match, as it should, selling, uh, you know, 
being a heel, how to really be a heel. Not to be cool so you could sell shirts, but to be really be a villain. And uh, Terry Funk was a he was a, he was Oscar winning villain without question. No doubt that is absolutely one of the greatest matches of all time. And I was actually going to ask you what your favorite match to call was. You actually beat me to it. But if I could just ask you, who was actually your favorite wrestler to call? I remember the kid. You were very, very. I mean, me too, of course. Was very into Sting. And, uh, you know, during the WCW days, and you would always get very excited for the Stinger. But do you have a favorite wrestler that you've called all time? Well, you know, the Sting thing was uh, uh, another, and he started in Mid-South. Uh, I saw him from, you know, he, he'd gone to Tennessee, he and uh, Helwig, very, very briefly. Then they came to work for Bill in Mid-South, and so I've known him forever. So I had a great uh, rapport with him. I had an emotional investment in that character. So when he was in WCW, he was our guy. He was one of the survivors that that made it after the buyout. After Crockett bought out UWF, Sting was one of the guys that actually survived. So I kind of felt a kinship to him, and I liked him a great deal personally. I think the guy that probably brought out the most organic, guttural passion for me uh, was uh, Stone Cold. And uh, I would say that uh, later on, uh, guys like uh, The Rock, uh, because I signed him and he was my boy from day one as a rookie in no territory background, and we he, he helped us mold him into uh, something extraordinary. But then there were other guys. You know, Shawn Michaels coming back after being gone four years was uh, was uh, amazing to me. And I got so into his matches. And, uh, you know, I was being phased out toward uh, his run there with Undertaker. But I got to call WrestleMania 25 in that one match. And I'm uh, thankful for that. So uh, there are different guys at different times in my life and my career and their life and their careers that brought out a little more juice in me. But over a haul, the long haul, Austin, from almost start to finish, was uh, special. Uh, but he wasn't the only one. Like you, you as Fafty pointed out, Sting was Sting was my Stone Cold before Stone Cold became that guy. Hmm. And uh, but you know that they were. But before Sting, there was Doctor Death. He was oh like yeah. Little, he was like my little brother. Not so little, but uh, but he was like a brother to me, and uh, you know uh, it was a great honor, and a, but also a great heartbreak to to give the eulogy at his funeral. I've been able to give the eulogy at uh, Jack Briscoe's funeral and Steve Doctor Death Williams' funeral, and I'm not trying to make a career out of doing eulogies, but it's just nice enough that the family's thinking up about are the relationships I had with the deceased. That they that they asked me to say a few words, and so uh, but Doc was very very special. Doc should have had a long run in uh, uh, Jim Crockett Promotions. Doc should have been uh, NWA champion at least for a run, because he damn sure would have been believable. But he he just didn't feel that that, that was going to be a steady foundation to build his career on, and so he decided to go to the Japanese route. And uh, that worked out for him just fine. So, uh, 
but you just you get emotionally attached. You know, I got how can how can you listen to the Undertaker Mick Foley the Mankind Hell in a Cell match and say I wasn't emotionally involved in that one because of Mick Foley? You know, I, I thought he died. I thought we killed. I thought he, we we killed him right there. I thought we, meaning the company, and or booking that match and 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 putting the pressure on this big main event. Uh, that 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 he had got paid the ultimate price to have a great match. So everything everybody hears on that uh, that soundbite was there was nothing rec- nothing rehearsed because Lawler and I didn't even know uh, what what they were going to do that night. And I was talking to Jerry the other day, and I said, Jerry, do you do you remember us sitting down and going over, you know, finishes and stuff like that? And he said, No, we never, we didn't want we didn't want to know. We just wanted to get surprised. And then the other day I was talking, this is a few days ago, I was talking to Bob Cottle, who hasn't been feeling well, and uh, I said, Bob, let me ask you a question. And uh, I said, when you and I were working together, did you remember that we were really dependent upon knowing what the finishes were? He says, well, I know. We, we hardly ever knew. So I think sometimes the announcers in today's world I don't know this for WWE. I don't know for any promotion. I might be dead wrong. The less you know about what you're, what's supposed to happen, the better off you are. And let your natural instincts and, and your... That way you don't have to become a professional actor. You're actually a broadcaster, and you broadcast what you see, and you communicate it in an organic, natural fashion. And I think that's why at one point in time my work was accepted well because... The product fit my style. It was physical. It was it was snug. It was athletic. And my first wrestling boss, Bill Watts, wanted me to call everything as if it were a shoot. And that's why I kind of miss the fact that I never got a chance to do any uh, significant work in MMA or USC because I think my style would fit MMA or USC to a T. But, you know, I think that ship has sailed. And I'm not, as Lawler would say, one can't grieve forever. So uh, I just, I watch it as a fan. And I, unfortunately, it's a blessing or a curse. And I think it's a curse. I, I broadcast every show I watch, whether it's Lucha Underground or TNA or Ring of Honor or what the hell, I can't get the, I can't stop it. My, my, I can't turn it off. I don't talk out loud, but I'm thinking what I would say what I would do, instead of just enjoying it. That's why I enjoy shows like uh, uh, Ray Donovan or True Detectives or Ballers, because I don't know what's going to happen. I can actually be a fan and not a participant. That sounds like definitely well said, and I'd love to get in your head and uh, hear some of those things that you're saying during, you know, maybe ROH or TNA or Loose Underground or even WWE, but I want to just uh, pick your brain just for a second and actually, just a prediction or two. Now, Undertaker's fighting Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam. What is your prediction on that match, and do you think that it possibly leads to another match, a third a trilogy match, if you will, at WrestleMania 32 in Dallas? Well, i tell you what I'll, I'll do. Uh, I'll make you a – I don't know how to answer this. I don't, know, I don't know how to answer it. A couple of things. One is on this week's podcast, I, t- I talk about how I would book their program. Secondly, on – my as we are recording this, uh, which is on what Tuesday, mm-hmm. uh, I have written a blog today, 
of how I would book the program between Lesnar and Brock Lesnar. And I would not go the traditional route of Taker wins and we go to the rubber match. But I have a very unique way of making that work. So I will encourage your listeners to check out my blog at jrsbarbecue.com and read my thoughts. And they're just one man's opinion. But I will tell you that I would not go the traditional rubber match route. And I'll leave it at that. Well, I'm very, very interested in uh, reading that. I will definitely have to check that out. But I just um, another just quick question for you um, pertaining to Seth Rollins, the current WWE champion. Do you see a long title uh, run in his future? Because right now he's going to be feuding with John Cena. Do you see him as like the future of the company per se and being the headliner for WrestleMania 32? I don't know that the WWE champion has to be the future of the company. Uh, I don't know that any one person uh, should be the future of the company. I think that's if it is, it's poor management because you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. I don't believe in that at all. Uh, so, but I am very proud of the worker that uh, he has become. Uh, he is a has a great mind for the business. Uh, extremely strong work ethic. Uh, he's a Booker's dream. In other words, he's a beatable champion. In in the territory days or the live event days now, uh, theoretically, on any given night that he's defending the title, he can be beaten. He's not so physically imposing that he looks unbeatable. So I like that. If you're going to have a heel champion, uh, then I like one that is uh, that has uh, vulnerability. And uh, this kid has got uh, great. He's built his body up well. He's a, he trains religiously. He eats amazingly uh, well. Which who cares about what he eats? Well, <laughs> you know, it kind of makes you are what you eat and how you train. And he's very serious about all that. So I love this commitment. That means to me he has made a commitment. So I, I'm a big, big Seth Rollins fan. I would I would not take the championship off of Seth Rollins uh, until WrestleMania. And then at WrestleMania, I might, uh, if I have something that I really believe works, then he would, that's where he would, uh, he would drop the title. And by then, he would have had it a year. And if he's not over and he's not a made man within a year after being the champion and after continuing to improve his game, uh, then you can't blame the promotion. Uh, you can't totally blame anybody, but between the promotion, the company, and the talent, a year should give you plenty of time to establish that you're a star. And to me, he's already a star. Uh, and he's, but I see him getting better at what he does. Uh, you know, uh, he's like he's like, but he's like any of the villains on TV, whether WWE, Ring of Honor, TNA, whatever. Uh, Lucha Underground, it doesn't matter to me. You, they, they're not enough guys cheat to gain unfair advantages, and until they start to, until villains stop working for the pop, this is awesome. If I were a villain, in the true sense of the word. That would piss me off to no end 
that the crowd was chanting that my work was awesome. My work should be menacing and dangerous and dirty, and uh, I should because it enhances your dancing partner and makes the baby face a more a bigger, stronger, more powerful ticket selling merchandise selling entity. Uh, so too many heels had rather work for a pop than work for heat. And uh, you take that angst away. And there's that fine line between good and evil, and it's almost a race now to where it's just very, uh, very faint. If it, if it disappears, you know, I, I say good luck to the business because you, if you take away the the uh, the heel villain dynamic, uh, I, I don't know what you got. I don't know who I'm supposed to root for. That'd be like in the NFL. Okay, we're not going to play any more home games. All the games are going to be on the road, and we're going to play in different stadiums, and but no home stadiums. So if you had an NFL game, the home team is normally the baby face. Last I looked, the visitors are normally the heels. Last I looked, but let's say you're you're the Giants and the Jets, and they're going to play each other, uh, uh, and you know uh, you, they they do the home and home. They don't. They well, that's not a good example. The Eagles and the Giants, and they're going to play their games in Cincinnati. Okay, who's the baby face and who's the heel in the Cincinnati Stadium? Is it who can get the most fans to drive to the stadium? It makes no sense. You've got to have a protagonist and an antagonist in any presentation of that nature. Sports are movies. I haven't seen Ant-Man, but I guarantee you there's some heels in Ant-Man. Or the, that movie that been what's his name? Uh, 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 Paul Rudd. The guy, yeah, the, there's a, there's heels in that movie, right? I mean, yeah. Didn't did, did Schwarzenegger just mix another Terminator movie? Are there not baby faces and heels in that movie? Are there not people that are trying to eliminate Schwarzenegger? They're the heels. It's just that it's the way that we're built society-wise. It's the way that we're wired. When uh, a team comes in to, to Norman to play my Sooners, they're the heels. If you don't believe me, just listen to the 80-something thousand that are in the stands. And they drown out that five or 8,000 or so that come from the, 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 with the visiting team, who are the heels. And maybe that's a too crazy of an analogy. I just believe it's woven into the fabric of our society and uh, that's how I I see things. And if pro wrestling gets too far away from having clear who the baby faces and who the heels are, uh, I I just don't know how you continue to keep the fans connected emotionally. And maybe I'm too old school to get it. And maybe it'll I'll be proven wrong. And if so, I'll sure be watching because I love the genre and I try to watch as much of it as I can every week. That's what DVRs are for. <laughs> That's why you are the best, JR, because you're old school and you tell it like it is, and there's not many left. But before the cowboy hat is hung up for good and you look back and you think of the career, now you, you already were getting on that plane to LaGuardia and you thought about what you were going to be doing when you hung it up, but what's JR's legacy going to be on the wrestling business when he does hang up that black hat for good? 
Oh, I, I hope it's that fact that uh, one of us as a wrestling fan made it and got one of the best seats uh, in the house for probably longer than he deserved. And uh, a wrestling fan made it to the Hall of Fame, and he lived a, a dream life uh, as a, you know, nothing, and never changed being a fan. Never changed being a wrestling fan. So a wrestling fan made it to the promised land would be my sentence. And, you know, I, I uh, and I love these one-man shows. Let me reconnect. My, I, I'm challenged I, I, in in New York, for example. My, I got one date all year in New York City, and I'll be damned if it's not on the same night that the NXT is going to sell out the Barclays Center. I heard last they had about 2,000 tickets left. I am praying and hopeful that they sell them as quickly as they can so that people then can consider coming to my show. Uh, and I'm proud for NXT, and I'm happy for those kids. And that's an amazing accomplishment to sell out. Uh, on, uh, but it just come at a bad time for me. Uh, August 22nd, Saturday night before SummerSlam, I'm going to be at the Gramercy Theater. And, and ironically, I'm going to give away two tickets to SummerSlam while I'm there to some lucky attendee. So uh, we, you know, it's a uh, Doing those shows, so I got another show coming to Baltimore at the ball at the DC Improv on Wednesday, the nineteenth of August of SummerSlam week, and the tickets for that we have less than a hundred left. It's going to sell out. So uh, I love doing those shows. It gets me back. In, it lets me get in front of the audience again and share with the fans and get in, enveloped in conversation with these Q and As. So. I think my legacy is uh, that a wrestling fan made it to the promised land. Simple as that. That's couldn't be said any better. Now, you plugged your dates. Please give everybody, I'm sure they already know it, but just for the sake of posterity, the, the Twitter address for JR, your website, which I, I heard you say on the law the other night, you had a, a hilarious line about your website um, URL. I, I was dying when you said it, but uh, please share it with the fans. Yeah, the... My former marketing person uh, registered the U, the URL, which at the time, and I still am challenged. I didn't know what a URL was. Uh, my my Twitter my uh, my Twitter account is easy. J R S B B Q. J R S B B Q. Easy. And I got 1.3 million followers. So at least at least 1.3 million people got it figured out. J R S B B Q. So that's cool. <laughs> The the uh, the uh, website is jrsbarbq.com. Jrsbarbq.com. I've settled down a little bit on it, but it's still stupid. Jrsbarbq.com. And that's that's where you'll find my Twitter or my uh, my blogs, and I answer Q and A's, and I have fun on that kind of. It's my companion when I can't sleep at night and I'm working on my book. I'll go online and write a blog or answer Q&As. I don't know how many people that have been in the wrestling business as long as me that actually answer their own Q&As or even care to hear what the fans are saying. And I've always believed this, fellas, is that if you respect the fans, they'll respect you back, even though we're in an age of youth and defiance and entitlement and to some degree. There's enough people out there with enough class 
and decorum that if you treat them professionally and you treat them nice, they'll reciprocate. And I see that with my uh, my my condiment line, my barbecue sauces and ketchup and mustard and beef jerky and uh, my the all-purpose seasoning, the products that we make that we put our family's name on that are not gimmicks uh, that we sell at WWE Shop, www.shop.com, and and they are doing a phenomenal. They're, they're, that business has grown immensely. And that's all because I believe, A, we make a great product, B, it's safe, easy online shopping, C, they ship most of the same days they receive the order, and but maybe most importantly is that I have tried to be genuinely decent to people and be a decent human being. And if you practice that, then more often than not, it becomes reciprocal. So uh, that's... That's about all I got to. Uh, I, I don't have anything else I can. I feel like I've just done a. Uh, uh, I've just pitched you a, uh, a telephone. I feel like Jerry Lewis <laughs> in the old days, you know. So, but I have fun with social media, and I hey, I'm, I'm also. I got convinced by my friend down in Maryland, uh, Dan McDivitt, who owns Maryland Championship Wrestling, one of the best indie promotions in America. Uh, that I should be on Facebook. I said, well, Danny, my boy, if you'll manage it and help me out, because you're an expert at it, I'll get on Facebook. So now, by God, OJR is on Facebook. Jim Ross BBQ. So there's another way. That's something else for me to do. So I'm uh, I'm becoming a social media mogul, but when you're selling products and you're doing shows and you're trying to get up, you're selling your podcast, and doing these ringside shows, these talk shows, you got to have a way to communicate and to market your product. I don't have a television show. I'm not on TV every week. So you got to create a network. And that's what we're trying to do here through Twitter and Facebook and the, the craziest website address in the world and and, uh, mm-hmm. and and soon Instagram. Now now they've convinced me I need to be on Instagram so I can tie everything together. So I uh, I don't know how that's all going to work out. I know somewhere along the way I'm going to make some really stupid uh, mistake and put something totally unintended on all of it that uh, will embarrass me and probably everyone that I know. But hopefully that's <laughs> maybe that won't happen anytime soon. Well, Jr., this has been uh, just an absolute joy on our part, and we thank you so much. And it's where I. Uh,